Chanel. We will, I can show that I will cut it short to get back on schedule. Don't worry. Would you open your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 11? 2 Samuel chapter 11. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. And from the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful. And David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, Isn't this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, and the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him, and he slept with her. She had purified herself from her uncleanness. Then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David, saying, I am pregnant. So David sent this word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent him to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was, how the soldiers were, and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. So Uriah left the palace and a gift from the king was sent after him. But Uriah slept at the entrance to the palace with his master's servants and did not go down to his house. When David was told Uriah did not go home, he asked him, why haven't you just come from a distance? Why didn't you, haven't you just come from a distance? Why didn't you go home? Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah are staying in tents and my master Joab and my Lord's men are camped in the open fields. How can I go to my house and to eat and drink and lie with my wife as surely as you live? I will not do such a thing. Let me, because of time, simply say what happened is that Joab was given instructions by David to put Uriah on the front of the battle where inevitably he would be killed. And we drop down to verse 26. When Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. After the time of mourning was over, David had her brought to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. May God be pleased to bless the reading and the preaching of this, his most holy and infallible word. May we bow briefly for a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, 
We invite the Holy Spirit to come and own the word that will be spoken. I pray for the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus upon us all, our minds, our hearts, that our perception will be what you intend. Cleanse my tongue, that I will utter only what you want said, nothing you don't want said. May this be a life-changing morning, and grant this to bring great honor and glory to your name. In Jesus' name, amen. Everybody's anointing needs to be refined. The fact that you have an anointing, the fact that the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and the fact that you've received an unusual experience with the Lord does not mean you are now ready to fulfill the work to which you've been called. We are all learning in the process. But let me put it like this. As Dr. Lloyd-Jones put it to me years ago, the worst thing that can happen to a man is to succeed before he's ready. The other side of the coin is the best thing that can happen to a man or woman is to be ready when they succeed. The man, the woman after God's own heart is one who will be ready. And God keeps you from the success that you long for, for your own good. Your heart may ache. You may cry out, Lord, why? Why have I not seen what you promised I would see? Why have I had to wait so long? And you see other people in their success and they're just making all kinds of impact wherever they go. And you wonder, why do you bless them? Well, there's an explanation. And it is this. You are the man. You are the woman after God's own heart. And God would do you no favor to let you have your way at this point in time. He has withheld from you that which you cherish most so that when you can be trusted and when your time comes, you will bring great honor and glory to his name. David, having waited over 20 years for the kingship, although during the entire time he had the anointing of the Spirit, was at long last ready to be king. He was first made king of Judah and then king of Israel. And his first major victory, apart from the, the, the defeat of the Philistines right, left, and center, is that David did what no one ever had done. They said no one ever will do it. Joshua failed. David succeeded in conquering Jerusalem, and it was an amazing victory. And that area became known as the city of David. And so those were the days of Israel's greatest king. We could, if we had the time, spend days on the victories of King David. You cannot exaggerate how great that era was. David simply defeated every enemy. He did not know defeat. 
You talk about success. It was success than which no greater could be conceived. Those were the glory days. But there was one thing perhaps for which David was not prepared. And in all our preparation, none of us get impervious to temptation. And it doesn't mean we can all handle success in the same way. We read in 2 Samuel 11, when it was time for kings to go to war, for the first time in his life, no one knows why he did this, David remained in Jerusalem. Could it be that he had had so much success that it had become boring to him? Or could it be that there were so many things happening in his life that he thought there was such a momentum that nothing could ever go wrong? He simply rested and enjoyed everything that was going on. And so let me give a loving caution to anybody here who may be riding a crest and you've never had it so good and you've never been so blessed and everything seems to be falling in place. The wind is at your back. The sun is out. God is blessing you. And you say, it's never been like this before. Listen to what I'm about to say. This could happen to you. As a matter of fact, what I'm about to describe could happen to any one of us. And if you think for one minute this could not happen to you, in that moment you set yourself up for one of the greatest surprises and greatest falls you ever thought of or what you could not envisage. And so what happened was this. David, on a day when he simply got up from an afternoon nap, went out on his balcony, stretched and looked out, and there before him was a woman washing herself. The Bible bothers to say she was very beautiful. I've often wondered why did the Bible tell us that. Didn't need to say that. Maybe to make you a tiny bit sympathetic with David. All I know is, it says, Bathsheba was very beautiful. And immediately, David asked, who is that woman? And the word came back and said, bad news, your majesty. She's married. That's not all. Her husband is one of your, one of your faithful soldiers. He's Uriah the Hittite, that should have stopped David right there. Could it be that as I speak, you are on the brink of an affair? Could it be that as I speak, you are in the middle of an affair? Could it be as I speak, you're having an emotional Affair, And you say, that's harmless. Could it be there's someone here today, you are addicted to pornography, the internet, 
Did you know that pornography is the number one sin of preachers? And could it be that as I speak, you know that if it were to get out on you what is really going on, you would be destroyed. You would be ruined. And could it be that God has brought you to this moment for such a time as this? And I would say to you on bended knee, as lovingly, as sweetly, as gently as I know how to say it, if you are in this situation, stop it. Stop it. Now. It is only a matter of time that the day will come you would give a thousand worlds to turn the clock back to this day, to this day, and say, why didn't I listen to R.T.? If only David had taken the warning, she's married. We're told that lust just came in. James chapter 1 describes temptation. James puts it like this. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when, by his own evil desire, he is dragged away and enticed then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Don't be deceived. What is the lesson we learn from this passage? Well, it's this. The man, the woman after God's own heart is not above the Word of God. You recall what made King Saul yesterday's man is that he put himself above the word. He says, I realize scripture must apply to everybody else, but I am king. And so he put himself above the word, promoted himself to the level of his incompetence, went beyond his anointing, and this is when Samuel came to Saul and said, had you obeyed, your kingdom would have continued on and on and on. But now God has sought after a man, a man after his own heart, one who will do what I tell him to do. But now David, having arrived and having become the king, and now was sitting as it were on top of the world, was to learn that he is not above the word. Now, there are two ways of understanding the word, or could I say it, the word word. First, Scripture. The whole of Scripture, we call it the Word of God. And the Greek word is logos, the Word. And so the whole of Scripture is logos. But there's another Greek word. It is called rhema. And that usually refers to a specific word, perhaps word of knowledge. Now, you don't want to press the distinction too far because sometimes they are used interchangeably. But generally speaking, you have the Logos, the whole of Scripture, and the Rhema. 
Now, here's the way it came out. After David conquered Jerusalem, he wanted to bring the ark into Jerusalem. And it comes out in chapter 6. And this is still during the time of his glory days. And what David wanted to do was a noble thing. It was a God-honoring thing. He wanted to bring the ark into Jerusalem. But it turns out that when they were carrying the ark into Jerusalem, that a man by the name of Uzzah reached out and took hold of the ark because the oxen stumbled and the Lord's anger burned against Uzzah. And because of this, he was struck dead on the spot. And David was angry because the Lord's wrath had broken out against him. And David says, here I am trying to do something that would honor God. And God betrays me and would do this to a man simply because he steadies the ark. Common sense would say he needed to do that or the ark would have fallen over. That would have been worse. So all he was doing was keeping the ark from falling. David was mad. He was angry. But then we're told his tone changed. And now he began to fear. There are times when we do what seems so reasonable and God is still angry with us and we blame him. That's exactly what happened. What David didn't know at the time and what we often don't realize at a time when we feel betrayed by God, that there's something else going on that we will not see today or tomorrow, but eventually we will see. And that is what the whole of God's Word teaches, the whole of Scripture, the Logos. And so it was a while before they realized what went wrong. And it goes back to the same passage that King Saul ignored. Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy. What was it? No human being was ever supposed to touch the ark in the first place because the ark of the covenant had rings on each side. Long poles were to go through the rings and then put on shoulders and the ark was to be carried like that because nobody could touch the ark. Had they done it according to Scripture, this would not have happened. A little thing like that, many of us would say, well, that's silly. Why would God be so finicky and so particular? But let me say this to you. His ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts higher than our thoughts. And when there is a true fear of God in the land, we will begin to take all his words seriously. And there was only one thing for David to do. If he was going to succeed in getting the ark into Jerusalem, he'd have to do it according to Scripture. He was not above the word. I wonder if there are those here today. You feel that in your case, you are not required to go according to Scripture, that you're different, you're of different temperament. Well, this is the first thing. David found out, even though he was a man after God's own heart, he had to go according to Scripture.
But then there was something else that took place. That when Nathan the prophet came to him, and David said to Nathan, Here I am living in a palace of cedar, while the ark of God remains in a tent. Nathan said to the king, Whatever you have in mind, go ahead and do it, for the Lord is with you. Now, here is a very interesting thing. I don't know if you picked up on a point that I made a day or two ago. When Samuel first came to the house of Jesse and saw Eliab, he said, Eliab is the Lord's anointed. He's going to be the next king. That's exactly what Samuel said. The NIV says he only thought it. The Hebrew says he stated it. This is it. Samuel actually said, Eliab is the one. And then God said, whoa, wrong. And Samuel, in front of everybody, had to climb down and admit he had got it wrong. It wasn't going to be Eliab. It turned out to be David. Nathan is in a similar situation. He says to David, you can do anything you want to do because Nathan could see that David wanted to build a temple for the Lord. And Nathan said, go for it. Do you know, when Nathan got home, God said to Nathan, did I tell you to say that? And God told Nathan he had to go back and tell David, sorry, I made a mistake. I jumped the gun. You are not going to be able to build the temple after all. Had Nathan been like so many people today with a prophetic gift, they would never have publicly climbed down. So many of us are so full of pride that if we make a public utterance, we stick by our guns, we say, this is what I said, this is it. As I said the other day, I know people who have actually put in print certain things that they've changed their mind on but won't admit it because of their pride. They won't admit that they have changed their mind or they got it wrong when they put it in print. And if you have a kind of gift, a prophetic gift, and you feel the Lord shows you something and later on you realize you got it wrong, question, are you willing to say, I was wrong? Or do you say, well, God told me and I'm staying by it. You see, that's a small man. And that's a person who will not see a continued anointing. The anointing will just lift from you. So, the brilliance of Samuel and the brilliance of Nathan is that they'd go back and say, made a mistake. I was wrong. And now Nathan has to go back to David and say, sorry about this. You're not going to be able to build the temple. This was the rhema word. It was the logos word that told David what had gone wrong when Uzzah was struck dead. Now comes a rhema word from Nathan the prophet when Nathan says, you cannot build the temple. The wonderful thing is, David listened to both. He made sure he got it right with regard to getting the ark into Jerusalem and we're told 
that after Nathan came to him and gave him that word, in 2 Samuel 7, verse 18, Daniel, uh, David went in and sat before the Lord and said, Who am I, O sovereign Lord, and what is my family that you have brought me this far? And David accepted the word. I think I should take a minute to tell you a story that I, I just, you would want to know this. John Newton, the vicar of Olney in Buckinghamshire, was a great hymn writer, close friend of William Cowper, who wrote, There is a Fountain Filled with Blood. John Newton wrote a new hymn every week. And he would write a hymn that was along the lines of the scripture he was going to preach on that Sunday. That particular Sunday coming up for John Newton, he was reading this same scripture I just read, where David went and sat before the Lord and said, Who am I that you have brought me this far? And John Newton began to think on his own life. And John Newton began to say, Lord, who am I that you brought me this far? And he realized that he had been a servant of slaves in Africa. And he'd been converted from a profligate life, a venal lifestyle. And now he was a vicar. And John Newton was overwhelmed. And he said, who am I that you brought me this far? And that was the week he wrote a hymn that goes something like this. You might have heard it. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I'm see. Through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. Tis grace has brought me safe this far. That was where he got it. And grace will lead me on. It's wonderful to reflect that God has brought us this far. Have you paused to thank Him that you are where you are? Louise and I, we come to England. You've no idea how good God's been to us to let us be here today. If you knew me, you might even be offended at God that he would let me stand before you. I don't deserve to be here today. You are looking at the most unworthy man. But God has just brought me here this far. Be thankful for that. Well, David was not above the word. He accepted it. Well, here's what happened. David now said, we're going to do it according to Scripture. And they put the long poles into the loops of both, on both sides of the ark. And men carried it on their shoulders, brought the ark into Jerusalem. And when David saw that they were going to get it into Jerusalem, he got so excited, he began to dance he took off his royal garment. 
He jumped up and down. He was so thrilled. You would not have known this was a king in his dignity. He lost it. He lost his head. He went crazy. He was so excited. And do you know, while this happened, the most ordinary Hebrew girls came up alongside and danced with him. And David's wife, Michal, some would say Michelle, not sure how we would pronounce it today, but she saw David. And we're told as he leapt and danced before the Lord, she despised him in her heart. And, and when he got home, euphoria was over because he got a tongue lashing from his wife and says, how the king of Israel has distinguished himself today, disrobing in the sight of the slave girls of his servants as any vulgar fellow would. Well, I could just pause and say something here you might want to know. When you get to heaven, you're going to find out how often God's sovereign vessels had unhappy marriages at home. And it was part of the explanation of their anointing. I can give you two examples. George Whitfield, the great English evangelist that went to America, was a part of the Great Awakening, was unhappily married. John Wesley, founder of the Methodist Church, was so unhappily married. His wife would come to hear Wesley preach and would cackle in the middle of Wesley's sermon. How would you like to have that for a wife? But that was John Wesley. And I could go on and on. And it could be there is one here today. Because you're trying to please God more than ever, you've got a partner who's angry. And all David was doing, he was just so excited. He finally succeeded. He not only conquered Jerusalem, but he got the ark there. And he had done it right. And he was so thrilled. But in all of this, David found out who his real friends were. And who do you suppose they were? They were these servant girls. They were unsophisticated they were unpretentious. And he was unashamed of them. Question, what kind of people do you look for in finding friends? Are you looking for somebody so that as soon as the evening's over, you can get on the phone and say, well, guess who I happen to have dinner with tonight? And all you want to do is name drop. When has the Lord dealt with you about that lately? You know, I was saying that to the Prince of Wales only this morning on the phone. <laughs> and as soon as he got off the phone, there was Billy calling from North Carolina. RT, I give my love to Eric Delve. Started to mention Mother Teresa, but she's dead. Do you pick friends so that you can tell others these are your friends? Or who are your real friends? And in that day, 
David said, these are my friends. And he went on to say to his wife, it was before the Lord I did this. I will become even more undignified than this. But by these slave girls you spoke of, I will be held in honor. Listen, when we get to heaven, we're going to mix with people that you might not have wanted to go on holiday here below. But learn who your friends are, those who love the Lord. Well, we've seen of David, he was a found man. He was a feared man. He was a formidable man. Look what he did in conquering Jerusalem. If only we could stop here. What if the life of David had ended at the end of 2 Samuel chapter 10? But now, we come to examine one of the saddest, most melancholy episodes in all holy writ. The man after God's own heart was a fallen man. He thought he got away with it because the plan worked. He put Uriah in the front of the battle, had him killed. He thought he got away with it. The truth is, he did for about two years. Did you know that? Nathan the prophet, the same one that told him he couldn't build the temple, comes to see David two years later. And it may be that you thought you got away with something a long time ago. And I don't mean to be unfair. And I don't mean to make anybody feel guilty. And believe me, before tomorrow is over, I don't think you will think I'm trying to do that to you. Because we've all got skeletons in the cupboard. And I'm going to spend the rest of today and tomorrow dealing with this side of David's life. The reason I'm making a point about the two years, if you have sinned, yet didn't get caught, I would give you this advice. Two things. First, fall on your knees and thank God that you have not been exposed yet. And second, be sure that you have not only confessed it, but that you have repented and that you've turned from it. And never again will you go back. That's why I have said, and I will repeat it, if it is happening now, or if it has happened, but you just think, well, I, I got away with it. Be very, very careful. Deal with it now in such a manner that just maybe 
you will be spared of any kind of public embarrassment. God isn't keen to expose you. He's not that kind of God. He just wants you for himself. And as long as you're sorry and it's over with, then thank God it's behind you. But if it's not, let this word be what it would take to turn things around. Well, what did a man after God's own heart learn? He learned that God is no respecter of persons. That's the big lesson. Not only was not David above God's word, David had to go by the word like anybody else. In the same way, the fact that David was a man after God's own heart did not exempt him from being exposed and dealt with. This is very, very important. Don't think that God is going to cover for you because you've got a, a, a certain profile and it would hurt his reputation if you got caught. Therefore, you're hiding behind that and you think you're exempt. Big mistake. Don't go there. Don't even think it. Because God can handle his reputation. This is why he's exposed those TV evangelists in America. He has continued to expose people in the highest places. He'll do it again. He'll do it with me. He'll do it with you. For a man after God's own heart is not exempt. So enter Nathan the prophet again. Two years later, by the way, the proof that you are a man, a woman after God's own heart is that God will send you a man of God to show you your sin. And so David was given a parable, a parable that first gave David a self-righteous feeling. This is such an interesting point that Nathan describes what David did in such a way that David doesn't twig to the fact he's being described himself. He thinks somebody else is being described and David gets so self-righteous and indignant, says, whoever that is, he shall die. When suddenly Nathan says, you're the man. You've just pronounced your own sentence. And then he began to describe everything David had done. Could it be that you, when you hear of another person's, person's sin or their failure or their fall, and you get so indignant, and you say, how could they do that? And you become so pompous and smug, and judgmental, and pointing the finger. Listen, it's a no-nonsense verse. Judge not lest you be judged. I would urge you when you hear of anybody falling, I don't care what it is, for you to realize that it's by the sheer grace of God that it's not you. Because it so easily could be you. 
And I've come to the place that when I hear of somebody falling, I think, oh, Lord, that could be me. Thank you that I haven't, because I know myself. What about you? Don't get on a pedestal and start judging those around you. David had done that, and he was guilty of the worst sin imaginable. But then when everything turned, and Nathan said, sorry about this, David, but you're the man. Here is the response of a man, of a woman after God's own heart. David breaks down. Instead of being defensive, instead of saying, you do not know what you're talking about, or instead of saying, look, I'm king, or instead of saying, look, I've got my special needs, Uh, my wife doesn't understand me, I'm a lonely man, and I just have a need that others don't have, and God and I understand this with each other. Have you ever found yourself thinking like that? You think you're the exception. He understands your case, and and you don't have to do what others do. That's the devil. But the man after God's own heart, instead of being defensive or denying it, he said, I've sinned. I've sinned. Is there anybody here today You, right in this place, right where you are sitting, would simply say to the Lord, in the words of the old black spiritual that came out of the cotton fields in Alabama, it's not my brother nor my sister, but it's me, O Lord, standing in the need of prayer. Not the preacher nor the deacon, but it's me, O Lord, standing in the need of prayer. Well, I remember when at Westminster Chapel we went through the life of David and uh, the book, A Man After God's Own Heart, is, is the fuller teaching of the whole life of David and is something you might be interested to know that when we finished the 12th chapter to Samuel chapter 12, it happened that it was at the 1st of December. And I decided, well, I'll go back to David in January and take out a few weeks for Christmas. We also decided on the 1st Wednesday of the new year in January that as a church we'd have a day of prayer and fasting. During Christmas I made a decision. I decided that I would not finish preaching on the life of David and went to the deacons. I said we will change the series when we come back in January. I'm not going to go back to the life of David. They said why? I said, I don't have the heart because David has sinned, he's killed Uriah, and we've got Nathan's prophecy, the sword will not leave your house 
And it's going to get worse and worse and worse as we go through the life of David. I don't have the stomach for it. I, I, I'm sorry. They just shrugged their shoulders. Well, okay. On that first Wednesday of January, we fasted as a church. This doesn't often happen to me because uh, usually on the days I fast and pray, that's when I hear the least from the Lord. It's a funny thing. You think you're going to hear from Him? Uh, more likely to get in a big argument with Louise or uh, have all kinds of trouble, be starving and irritable and having bad breath and you think, what's this all about? I don't feel spiritual. But on that day, I had something happen. And I promise you, I won't say it was an audible voice, but it almost was. It was as if I heard the Lord say, so you're not going to preach on the rest of the life of David, right? I wasn't prepared for what I heard. Don't you know that the downside of David, that's where your people are? And I was stunned. I thought, my people? Yes. They've all got skeletons in their cupboards. That's the outlook they have. They've got a past, and they're wondering, how can I live now? And I felt so convicted and so ashamed. And I went back to the deacons and said, we're going to go right through the life of David. And you should know that the rest of preaching on David was the best part of the series. God wasn't finished with David. Oh, yes. The sword came to his house. There was Absalom. There was Adonijah. There were so many things that went wrong. But that is when David developed communion with the Lord and found out he had a future, even though he was in exile for a while. And I want you to know that whatever you've been through, because you are a man after God's own heart, God isn't finished with you yet. There's a future to be lived, and the best is yet to come. I told you I'd quit 15 minutes early. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, take this word and apply this word by your Holy Spirit. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.